Fusion, the International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, your friendly science radio show. Sit back and relax as we propel tiny particles of science through your station tubes into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature driver fatigue, space mission anniversaries, and the latest in science news with Patrick Ruby. Safe injecting saves lives, in a story brought to you by ABC Science. Canadian researchers say that safe injecting facilities, such as the facility InSight, have cut overdoses in illegal drug users. This research was published by Dr Brandon Marshall and his colleagues from the British Columbia Centre for Excellence in HIV-AIDS. The institute that they investigated, known as InSight, based in Vancouver, is funded by the province of British Columbia. The facility has been able to cut drug overdose deaths by 35% in Vancouver's downtown Eastside neighbourhood, which is an area which has got a high drug addiction rate, according to the study. Overdose deaths have also fallen in other parts of Vancouver, but by much less than this area surrounding the institute called InSight. But the period for which the institute has remained open as part of a study has come to an end, and the federal government in Canada is trying to close the institute. Two courts so far have blocked the government's efforts, ruling that InSight needs to remain open as a needed medical service. These have been appealed by the Ottawa government in the Supreme Court. The researchers claim that SIF should be considered where injection drug use is prevalent, particularly in areas where there are high densities of overdose. The recent findings have been published in this week's issue of The Lancet. Evolution is shortening pregnancy, in a story by ABC Science. An analysis of fast-evolving genes may give insight into why some babies are born prematurely. This research is conducted in the US by Dr. Louis Muglia of the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. The researchers took an evolutionary perspective on the timing of pregnancy, and they looked at the genes involved in birth timing and the differences between these genes between primates and humans. Compared to other species, human babies have a relatively big brain and head, and mothers have a relatively narrow birth canal. Human gestation is one of the shortest of all primates, and gestation needs to be just long enough to optimise the size of infants while reducing the complications during childbirth. The researchers looked at a set of genes which they thought would be involved in birth timing by looking at genes which had evolved rapidly from primates through to humans and presumed that these genes were responsible for the reduction in gestation times. They compared the genomes of humans, chimps, 
rhesus monkeys and macaque monkeys and identified 150 fast-evolving genes. They then looked at 9,000 variants of the genes, called single nucleotide polymorphisms, which were associated with preterm birth in humans. What they found was quite interesting. They found that the gene which had evolved most quickly was the gene responsible for follicle-stimulating hormone. Previously, follicle-stimulating hormone was not known to have any association with labour itself. But other studies have shown that follicle-stimulating hormone polymorphisms have also been associated with different gestational periods in humans. If the association holds, then it could be used as a means of genetic screening to identify women at risk of preterm birth and could also be used for targeted drug therapy to treat these women. The research has been published in the PLOS Genetics Online. And finally, space is destroying our medicines. Space travel may compromise the effect of stored medicines. This investigation was conducted by Brian Dew from the engineering group and colleagues for NASA. They sent four medical kits containing 35 different medicines that were commonly used by astronauts into space, and they left four control kits stored in a controlled environment on Earth. At the end of the study, they compared the kits that were stored in space to the ones that were stored on Earth and found that less than a third of the solid formulation medicines that were kept in space were able to meet requirements for levels of active drug ingredients and that this decay in their activity had a noticeable time relationship. The longer they were kept in space, the less activity they had. The reason behind this is thought to be because medicines are taken out of their packaging when they're used in space and put into special compact flight kits. They're also exposed to higher levels of ionising radiation. This research was published in the AAPS journal. As a segue on science news, here at Diffusion, we were so busy last week telling you about all of last week's wonderful science that we didn't even get around to celebrating the 50th year anniversary of the first cosmonaut to ever circle the Earth. So here at Diffusion this week, we're going to celebrate that by um, recapping the history of this historic moment. 50 years ago, on April 12, 1961, a young cosmonaut became the first human ever to slip the bonds of the Earth. At just 27 years old, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin encircled the Earth for 108 minutes on his Vostok 1 spacecraft, which was computer-controlled, and became the first man in space. 
Gagarin's flight didn't end up with him riding his spacecraft down to Earth. Actually, he ended up in a parachute landing after he ejected from his descending capsule. The Soviet Union had already made history in 1957 with its launch of Sputnik. 23 days later, Alan Shepard, the first U.S. astronaut to reach space, began the race that culminated in NASA's Apollo moon landings. Since that time 50 years ago, the United States, Russia, and China have committed to ever-larger space stations, which have maintained a human presence in space. Fifty years ago, we had the first man in space. Shortly thereafter, the first man to land on the moon. And here at Diffusion, we're hoping for an eventual Mars landing. So in honor of Yuri, here is some vintage music celebrating the wonder of space by the incomparable Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. Why do we all want to be up there, up there? What is there to do or see up there, up there? Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future. There's a lot of who knows what away up there. Now that I think of it, why do we want to be up there? Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we, we want to know. And we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists away up there. Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future. There's a lot of who knows what away. listening to Diffusion Science Radio, recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Podcast us at our website, www.diffusionradio.com, or send us emails at diffusionradio at 2SER.com. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking. A way of skeptically interrogating the universe. If we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we're up for grabs. And finally, Ian Wolfe spoke to Dr. Sarah Lal and her PhD student, Diarmud Kavanagh, about their research into detecting fatigue in drivers and intervening before it causes accidents. Driver fatigue is a major socioeconomic problem that can lead to road and industrial accidents. I'm speaking to Dr. Sarah Lal, senior lecturer in the Department of Medical and Molecular Biosciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Diamond Kavanagh, Australian postgraduate award industry IT student, nearing completion of his PhD in the Department of Medical and Molecular Biosciences in the Faculty of Science, associated with Forge Industries. Sarah, 
You're investigating driver fatigue. I've been researching into driver fatigue as a doctoral student here at the University of Technology to begin with back in 1998. And since I've researched into driver fatigue in the PhD, I went on to do a fellowship in sleep disorders and fatigue. Subsequently, I became a senior lecturer in the Department of Medical and Molecular Biosciences and I'm teaching neurosciences and medical physiology and still researching into the area of fatigue, which is a major socioeconomic problem in society. It is because we've got people with really big machines going very fast. That's where my PhD researcher, Dermid Kavanagh, is actually conducting his research. Basically, from the statistics that are coming out, truck drivers and trucks on the road are likely to double in the next 20 or so years. And, in fact, the evidence is that most of the trucks now going from Sydney to Brisbane are actually be doubles. So they're actually like double the size of the trucks we might be used to. Super trucks. Super trucks. And it, it's kind of obvious that uh, as the truck gets bigger, the skills and the ability of the truck driver to maintain that machine on the road safely obviously become an issue if uh, they're not in the appropriate state to do so. We've been looking at um, a more holistic approach because there's plenty of evidence out there from my readings that a number of things have been tried so far. The truck drivers, they tend to find a way around the intervention, if you could call it that, or the technique used to uh, keep them in a managed state. When I say managed, I mean managing their fatigue. And so I've tried to find an approach using a bit of psychology and psychophysiology and a few other things that's designed to actually engage the driver. So we're looking for a technique that is actually useful for the driver so that they actually get involved in the process. The real thing that's happened so far um, with a lot of the technologies that have been deployed to date is they tend to look for eye blinks or they tend to look for signs of fatigue right at the end of the fatigue period. And the trouble with that is that by that time it's, it's almost like being drunk. You, don't actually, you can't actually engage your cognitive skills, you, your decision making is actually impaired to the point where you actually think you're doing well and you think you can get to the next stop without an accident but actually you're at a point where you can't even make a good decision. We are trying to look at techniques that bring that back to a much earlier period where we can actually detect maybe two hours beforehand that the driver may be moving into this state so that we can give them some indications that perhaps they should think at that time about their decision making. But the holistic approach even goes further than that is if you can engage the driver in how they drive to begin with, it's like education, and they get a profile of how they drive and under what conditions they drive and how the roads affect them and things like that, then they can actually look at that before they even go on a drive. And amazingly enough, as it turns out, you tend to cognitively, if you've kind of looked at things beforehand, you tend to be more aware when you're in the process. And that's what I mean by being more holistic. So the idea is to be able to actually allow the driver to record on the road their physiology and, and certain signs and match that back to the road conditions and allow them to go back home and, and use that data in the comfort of their home to actually say, well, how did I go on this drive? And actually basically look at how they went and see the spots where they didn't do so well, spots maybe where they weren't controlling the truck as well as they could. So and what sort of physiological signs are you looking for? Well, we're looking for EEG and, and EKG, but the real thing... I think we've, we're interested now in heart rate variability, for instance. So EEG for the listeners is the brain waves. EKG is signals from the heart. That's right. And now you're looking... I'm very much at the variability of, of the EKG of the heart. What do they have to wear for all this to be measured? 
Well, I'll just talk quickly about heart rate variability. What we're trying to now do is deviate away from monitoring brain activity, which would mean that you probably have to have some electrodes on the brain and wear a headband, etc. But we would like to probably make it quite simple and wear, say, a wristband, a wristband which can actually monitor cardiac activity. In the cardiac activity, we would be actually looking at sympathetic and parasympathetic changes, and we would like to see how the autonomic nervous system, cardiac autonomic nervous system changes as one is actually driving. There is already evidence in the literature and from our previous studies that there is some decay in some of those autonomic components as one is getting towards a fatigue state. So if we can find a predictor variable or marker of fatigue in the actual electrocardiogram, then we should be able to use it as a wristband and be able to monitor fatigue ongoing real time in, say, a truck driver's cabin. So the truck driver wears the wristband and initially he's just monitoring it and then he looks at how he went. And so it's a kind of feedback, a delayed feedback for the driver. Well, because it's real time monitoring and we're hoping that the processing, etc., of the signals in the future will be quite fast, it would be more like ongoing monitoring of the driver and be able to alert at that particular point in time when fatigue is happening. The good thing about this is the fact that we are trying to monitor fatigue long before the physical signs of fatigue appear on the face or on the body because it's too late. You'll hit the steering wheel by that time probably with your head and be nodding off. What we are trying to do is monitor what's happening to the human physiological levels inside the body long before the fatigue states start to show its signs on the face. There's a bit of interesting psychology in what's going on too. We certainly have the technology to, for continuous monitoring, but continuous monitoring has always been an area where people get very sensitive about Big Brother and concerned about what might be going on. So if you're going to engage the industry and, and the truck drivers themselves, you've got to look at it from a more, um, from the point of view, first starting off and allowing them complete control. In other words, what I'm saying is we first go by allowing the truck driver to actually record the data on a little unit that's in the truck and take it home and load it onto his PC and compare it to other data, and he's in control of the whole process. So there's no fear there that somehow, um, it, whether he's doing good or, or not so well on the road, is going to get into the hands of someone else, because obviously people are going to, truck drivers are going to be concerned about their livelihood. Yes, so it's for the drivers and not yeah. for the managers. That's right. Ultimately, with all these systems, it, useful information can be given to management, but the idea would be to anonymise it and, and, and scrub it of any information. In fact, that is where we'd like to go, because really what we'd like to know is a, in a cohort of drivers, maybe for a particular company or for a, a particular type of industry, We'd like to know what the trends and patterns might be. And particularly because what a lot of systems up to now have assumed or make the assumption that somehow one device fits everyone. And the reality is that many of these drivers, from what I've seen in the lab, are complete individuals. And there's a whole different pattern of things happening during their life and their day that affects how they might drive. For these points that they find when they're going to get tired and they can look in their their schedule and what part of their route they get tired. So the best thing for them to do is to pull over and then maybe have something to eat? Well, absolutely. The best the best, the best, best solution to this is have a rest. The last thing I want to ask you is to just tell me a little bit more about this variable EKG signal that you're getting from the wrist. So is it mainly about the nervous system changes that you're measuring the fatigue? With the heart rate variability, it's actually our cardiac autonomic nervous system that we're trying to monitor. 
which once we have subjected it to some fast Fourier transform type of analysis, we're able to extract out the sympathetic and the parasympathetic components of our nervous system activity. Sympathetic basically means we're more in an alert, active state. Parasympathetic means we're more in a relaxed state. And in a drive situation, we want to know where exactly in the continuum of relaxed to alert we are. Because if we are very, very relaxed, then obviously we're on the verge of trying to fall asleep maybe. And we don't want to be absolutely fatigued when we are actually driving. The good thing about what Dermot is saying is there should be intermittent stops along the way and we need to know exactly where these hot spots are so we can put mm. the stops. But at the same time, if there is a non-invasive continuous monitoring of driver activity inside the cabin, it's better than not alerting the driver at all whilst he's driving. It's at least there's something there which can go beep. Yes. If, say, the sympathetic activity goes down too much, which means the driver is now not in a alert state, and if it goes then more towards the fatigue levels, and we know exactly when it will be in a fatigue state from the physiological signal, which could be the EKG in this case, we would then be able to alert the driver at the different states of alertness or different levels of fatigue, you could say. Yes. Um, for example, you might be um, starting to get tired, maybe open the window or listen to the radio, or if it gets really dangerous, we could be saying red, red alert, red alert, stop the truck, yes. etc. So I personally think that even though other measures are there, countermeasures which are um, basically practical, etc., we also need to be interacting with the driver in very many ways to identify, for example, the hot spots where we might place mm. the um, stop, survive, revive things, but at the same time be able to alert the driver on their continuous drives to be able to say now, it's dangerous to be continuing to drive. You should stop now. Think about it this way. Fatigue is not just an issue in the trucking industry. It's an issue in all our round-the-clock operating industries. We're talking from aviation to mining to nursing, medical, trucking, or just a normal non-professional driver on the road, people operating heavy machinery. So this type of research has got potential to be applied to many different areas to try to prevent fatigue or find countermeasures and manage fatigue in the future. I've worked in, in other industries and telecommunications is one where there used to be a lot of alarms going off in telephone exchanges. My observation was that many times they got switched off. So from a psychological point of view, there's other ways we, we've kind of thought about that might be needed to engage with the driver. Again, we go back to the privacy problem, but one possibility is with the technology we have now is back-to-base alerting that maybe someone should contact the tr truck driver. Now, I'm saying I'm trying to be very careful here because we don't want to turn this into controlling the truck driver, but there should there's definitely the, the means by which we could send alerts back to base and then someone could get on the radio or something and say, perhaps you need to pull over Joe or perhaps you need to take a break or is there anything we can do for you so that level of intervention I think is also a positive but again we have to always balance that off with privacy just following on from what Dermot just said I think it's very important and it might be fairly safe for me to now um, just make a um, comparison with our waterfall train accident that we had whereby we were identifying or maybe the investigation identified that the driver was in a stressed state there were some medical issues going on um, they might have been fatigue related to this. And if we would have had some sort of, sort of a physiological monitor on the driver long before the accident happened, we might have been able to track what was happening to the driver medically and maybe prevent such a large mishap from happening. 
and preventing a lot of socioeconomic type of loss and emotional loss to society. Dr. Sarah Lowell and Dermot Kavanagh, thank you very much. That was Dr. Sarah Lal and Dermot Kavanagh speaking to Ian Wolfe about driver fatigue management from the Department of Medical and Molecular Biosciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology in Sydney. Find out more at science.uts.edu.au. Before you leave these portals to meet less fortunate mortals, there's just one final message I would give to you. You all have learned reliance on the sacred teachings of science. So I hope through life you never will decline in spite of Philistine defiance. To do what all good scientists do. Experiment. Make it your motto day and night. Experiment, and it will lead you to the light. The apple on the top of the tree is never too high to achieve. Just take an example from Eve. Experiment. Be curious, though interfering friends may frown. Get furious at each attempt to hold you down. If this advice you'll only employ, your future will offer you infinite joy and merriment. Experiment and you'll see. And that's all from us on this edition of Diffusion. You can send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2ser.com. We love to hear from you. Tell us about your thoughts, feelings, and stories about science. If you'd like to be on the radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers. So please subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were... Ian Wolfe, and Patrick Ruby. Diffusion has been produced by me in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.